0: Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising.
1: The 29th of July, 1981. Prince Charles marries Lady Diana Spencer. An eight year old boy watches a fairy tale unfold. An hour later, he's missing.
2: Then, one day in 2020, a BBC reporter gets a call from a mysterious source. Vishal.
1: The extraordinary true story of a boy who went missing while the world looked the other way.
0: All lives are not treated the same.
2: Listen to Vishal.
3: BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts.
0: From global current affairs to art, science and culture. The documentary from the BBC World Service tells the world's stories. Search for The Documentary wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
1: Hello and welcome to the Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry on Discovery for the BBC.
4: This is the programme where you send us in the queries, questions and conundrums that you are curious about and we will look into them on your behalf using the power of science.
1: So please do send us your questions, Curious Cases at bbc.co.uk and on with the show.
4: A short but sweet question for today's Curious Case. Can you bring back an extinct species? This one sent in to us by Miko Campbell to curiouscases at bbc.co.uk. And I reckon this is going to keep us going for a good half an hour because, Adam, this has got genetics, it's got evolution, it's got ancient DNA. What do you think? Can you bring back an extinct species?
1: Yes, well, my considered view on this is that projects to bring back extinct species are Unethical, unscientific, expensive vanity projects that should be banned or mocked. Probably both.
4: OK, so I'll put you down as don't know, shall I? <laughs> um,
1: go on, though.
4: Woolly mammoths back from the dead or T-Rexes. Are you not a fan of Jurassic Park?
1: Massive fan of the first Jurassic Park. But you remember the whole point of those films? is that it all went terribly wrong for everyone involved. Mm, no, I think, I think the point of the films was that dinosaurs
4: are awesome. No! <laughs> OK, then. OK, fun place. Let's see if we can shift that dial a little, Dr Rutherford, because we are joined in the studio by Dr Helen Pilcher, author of a book on the new science of extinction, Bring Back the King. Now, Helen, this isn't totally science
5: fiction here, is it? Haven't they successfully brought animals back from the brink before? Well, uh, there was an animal called a picardo, or the Pyrenean Ibex, and it was this goat with incredible curved horns that lived on the Pyrenees in between France and Spain. And it was there for thousands and thousands of years where it was doing really, really well. And then we spotted its big horns, and we thought they'd look amazing on our living room walls, and people went out and started shooting it. Numbers declined, kept on going. The species is in free fall until the year 2000, beginning of the year 2000, there was just one left. So this is an elderly adult female goat called Celia and the scientists realised they had to do something to try and save the species, but they didn't know what. So they went out and they caught Celia. She's like on this vertical cliff, so they go out and they catch her, no mean feat. Uh, They put a radio tracking collar around her neck and they take a couple of cells, some biopsy samples. Uh, And then a short while afterwards, uh, Celia died that's the end of this bucardo right extinct Mm. game over so that's what we're all taught but the scientists who had taken the biopsy sample uh, realized they could do something different with it so you're aware of the technology that was used to make dolly the sheep Mm. the first mammal to be cloned from an adult cell so they took these cells that they had from celia and they used them for cloning so they made a little clone of the bucardo they implanted it into the uterus of a surrogate goat so a, a kind of a regular domestic goat species and there were quite a few failed attempts but eventually one of these little embryos inside the surrogate goat developed all the way through and was delivered by c-section
1: Celia 2 Celia reborn so that that is an impressive story we are in the age of cloning since since dolly what are what are the ingredients what's the recipe what do you need to get from celia to celia 2?
5: First of all, what you need is um, a cell from the extinct species. So these are better taken whilst that species is still alive, right? They're in better nick. So that could be a skin cell, for example, which is what happened with celia. And then you take the DNA from inside that cell. So this is element number one. Then you need element number two, which is an egg cell from a closely related species. So in this case, a domestic goat. So then you take the DNA from Celia. You put it into the empty egg cell, which has had its own DNA removed. Give it a little jolt of electricity to make this cell start dividing. This is in a culture dish. Uh, And the cell starts dividing in culture. You get a little embryo. And then the next thing you need is a surrogate animal. So you can borrow their reproductive biology. So in this case, it was a, a domestic goat. The embryo was implanted into the uterus of the domestic goat who then carried it to term and gave birth to it.
1: How does a domestic goat feel about carrying an Iberian uh, ibex inside it?
5: I'm not entirely sure. So it wasn't a regular domestic goat. It was sort of like a, a slightly wild, absolutely livid um, <laughs> <laughs> goat subspecies that was quite care, you know, carefully related, closely related to the Bicardo. I don't know if people ask the goat directly, uh, but um, yeah, it was apparently a fairly normal pregnancy.
1: Well, yeah, this, this will come up later on in the programme, I- I'm sure. But still, that is an impressive story, isn't it?
5: What's that goat doing now? That the the Celia Mark II. Ah, so uh, it sounded like an amazing comeback, and it was for all of seven minutes. Uh, seven minutes. Seven. Seven minutes. So this little cloned Picardo was born by C-section. Then it started to develop really severe breathing problems, and there were some really high-tech vets in the room. They all tried to resuscitate, revive this little animal, but they couldn't. So this very first de-extinct animal sadly died just seven minutes after it was gone
1: and i feel bad now for taking the, the mick out of out of celia that that isn't what i would class as a success story in science though
5: well it, it, you can look at it in a couple of ways you could say you know this isn't just the first animal ever to become de-extinct it was also the first animal ever to go extinct twice
1: <laughs> god that's so much worse
4: okay but the thing is it does prove that it's possible
5: Maybe you could end up
4: with a with a better ending to the story, but it does prove it's possible. So if you can do it with a species where you happen to have the tissue while it's still alive, does this mean that we can we can make other creatures too? That ones that have been long dead, like dinosaurs, for example, could Jurassic
5: Park really happen? The the sad and the the rather short answer is no. Okay, so
1: I concur. Well
5: hang on, what about mosquitoes trapped in amber, guys? So what you need is a source of DNA. And although scientists have been able to get DNA from some fossils, DNA degrades over time and dinosaurs you know what we think of as dinosaurs t-rex etc went extinct 65 million years ago that is just too far in the past to be able to get any usable DNA and certainly to get any usable cells so dinosaurs are off limits sorry what about woolly
4: mammoths, though because it okay just go with me for a second woolly mammoth frozen in time in the tundra go get in some some nice DNA from them surely surely that will work
5: well, so your people are finding carcasses of woolly mammoths in the Arctic with increasing frequency. Uh, and sometimes when they find them, they are incredibly preserved and they'll hack into them with a knife and they'll see something that looks like a, a fresh Waitrose steak inside. <laughs> But although. <laughs>
1: Christ, for the lawyers. <laughs> okay. I'd Other
5: like to point out. Yes. <laughs> you can go on YouTube and see this amazing scientist actually cutting in to a woolly mammoth carcass and he pulls out a piece of frozen fresh meat and has a little nibble <gasps> on it. You can see that happening. So it looks like it's in good shape. This mammoth tissue, this mammoth meat, if you like. Uh, but the last woolly mammoths died out four or five thousand years ago. Uh, the ones that we have remains of are have been frozen in the permafrost all that time. If you freeze any sort of cell without some special preservation method, what will happen is the cells will shatter and the DNA will leak away. So you can't make a woolly mammoth by cloning, OK? The cells are not in decent nick. You can't do that. But there may be another way around it instead. There's this whole other technique called gene editing. And there is this group called Colossal, this project called Colossal, And this is the approach that they're taking.
1: Well, it just so happens that we have Dr. Beth Shapiro, who's been an advisor to the company Colossal that is involved in trying to resurrect the mammoth. Beth, thanks for speaking to us from from California. Hello. What is the overall plan for resurrecting the mammoth?
3: The overall plan from Colossal's perspective is to identify the genetic changes that make a mammoth look more like a mammoth and less like an elephant, and then engineer an Asian elephant cell to have some or as many of those mutations as possible to create, if you will, an Arctic adapted elephant. So not really a mammoth. We know that we can't do that. Once something is extinct, it's gone forever. But something that approximates a mammoth the plan is to eventually have these Arctic adapted elephants born and raised and hopefully released into some habitat in which they are welcome. I think personally that this is a long way off, but the technologies that are discovered and developed along the way are going to be useful for lots of, of different applications in conservation. I noticed that you keep saying
4: Arctic adapted elephant. That feels a bit different from Willy
3: Mammoth. Why? Why can't you just get a woolly mammoth? Once a species is gone, we lose a lot of what it is that made that species. We don't have the capacity right now to make every single genetic change that is in a woolly mammoth compared to an Asian elephant. The technology isn't good enough. But also, living things are more than just the sequence of A's and C's and G's and T's, the DNA letters that make up our genome. We're a combination of those DNA letters and the environments in which we live. And the mammoth's environment is gone.
4: This is obviously extremely cool. I mean, imagine if you were a great emperor and you got to ride into town on your woolly mammoth. <laughs> but, but that's very specific uh, use aside. What is the big,
3: what's the big ambition? Why do we want them to come back? You know, there's lots of motivations for thinking about bringing back extinct species. Um, For me, the most compelling arguments are about developing technologies that will help us to help species that are perhaps still alive, but on the edge of becoming extinct. If we can use these same technologies to engineer traits into these species that help them to keep up, you know, help them to evolve, as it were, as quickly as their habitats are changing, then that I think would be an enormous benefit for conservation. So then why bother with the woolly mammoth? at all then? Oh, so people are excited about things that are big and exciting and different from what we know. I, you know, everybody always asks why the mammoth, and my answer is usually because we can't do dinosaurs. I, I think if we could bring a T-Rex back to life, that's what people would be focusing on. But mammoths are big, and there's something exciting about them that reminds us of a time past.
1: These are, these are are. We know that elephants are highly sophisticated social animals that exist in, in stratified cultures, in specific environments that they've evolved in. Um, and, and we're talking about bringing back... Not a social group, but a couple of individuals that will be not mammoths they 'll not be asian elephants they 'll be born to Asian elephants into an environment that that doesn 't exist It just seems like a, it seems like a Jurassic park type idea, and that didn 't work out very well
3: but this is another benefit of of saying admitting uh, acknowledging that what we would be bringing back is just an arctic adapted elephant we're creating something new these arctic adapted elephants would live with other elephants they would be trained by other elephants they would be born into a social group i understand that it feels uncomfortable to imagine you've created one hairy elephant you're going to drop it off in the middle of siberia and it's going to live by itself but that's not at all the plan you know the the plan which is another reason why this is such a long term project you know, elephants don't reach reproductive maturity until they're teenagers. We're talking at least a hundred years before there is a family unit, a social group that one might be able to take up into the Arctic and and release it somewhere. But it's a goal, and having this goal allows the space, the, the freedom, the opportunity to discover these technologies. And all of these things, all of these new ideas and creations will have application to protect species that are alive today. If it takes some excited thought about how we might someday have woolly mammoths to bring a huge amount of investment from technology firms and and billionaires who've made their money on the tech market to conservation, then so be it. I think this is a fantastic opportunity for conservation to learn new things, to grow, to become something new, to get new sources of income, which we desperately need if we want to protect biodiversity.
5: I I think the other thing here as well is that the Woolly Mammoth De-Extinction Project is having an impact on conservation of endangered species now. So one of the advisors to Colossal, the Woolly Mammoth Project, is a guy called Thomas Hildebrandt from Germany. He's working with Colossal to develop the methods to implant embryos into Asian elephants. Now, elephants are endangered So if some of the money from the Woolly Mammoth Project is going into funding Asian elephant conservation and using some of these new assisted reproductive techniques to benefit the Asian elephant, then even if we don't go all the way with a woolly mammoth, because who knows what will happen? It's having real tangible benefits now for conservation, uh, you know, in the real world. Adam?
1: Well, I think that's a techno fix to a different problem, which is we should be conserving Asian <laughs> elephants without trying to genetically engineer them.
5: I, I've got enough of How your... about just
1: not shooting them in the first place?
5: <laughs> you know, I completely agree that, you know, we should be conserving what we have. But if we look at rhinos, one of the other great mega herbivores that are out there, there are 60 ballpark Sumatran rhinos left, 85 other species. We wish there weren't so few left, but there are. Here we are. So we have a choice. We let them go. If we just use standard conservation methods, or we start refining these techniques and applying them to these species before they're gone. What I've
4: noticed now, Adam, is that this program has descended into three women shouting at you. <laughs> 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 but it's okay. You can continue to be your cantankerous self in the corner. Uh, I'm used to. It. I mean, the, that the, is
1: basically what my home life is like. The T. Rex killjoy over there is. Yes. <laughs>
4: All right, let's accept then that we're not going to bring dinosaurs back from the dead. Let's accept that woolly mammoths are extremely difficult, if not technically impossible. But there are, surely, other uses for these technologies that can help existing species to
5: prevent them from going extinct in the first place. Help me out here, Helen. Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple of stories. Uh, There's one about the black-footed ferret, which is... Oh, just the most exquisite uh, little mustelid with like a black sort of uh, mask around its eyes and little black sooty feet. And these little ferrets were once common uh, in parts of America. Um, and then their numbers started to dwindle for all sorts of different reasons, habitat erosion. Uh, there was a disease called the sylvatic plague, which was affecting the prairie dogs that the ferrets ate. And basically they went extinct.
1: Well, now we happen to have spoken to Dr. Ben Novak, who's the lead scientist at a company called Revive and Restore. Good name. And here he is with the story of how the black-footed ferret was rediscovered in Metizi, Wyoming.
6: It was actually thought to be extinct completely. And then in 1981, a ranch dog brought a black-footed ferret and dropped it on its owner's porch. It It had either killed it or found it dead. The rancher threw it in a pile, like, oh, another dead thing my dog brought me. And his wife thought that's that animal looks different, and so she said, "Let's." She got it out of the pile. She said, "Hey, let's take this into town." They brought it to a local taxidermist who didn't even speak to them. His eyes were huge. He he gasped and he just went into the back and called up the government and biologists from the state game department. You know, came out and they did, and they spotted over a hundred black-footed ferrets the the last ones alive for this species. over the next few years they they worked to protect those and monitored those but then in 1985 they got hit by an epidemic and the population started to plummet and they immediately started going out and decided they would capture the very last ones get them into a breeding center to save them they managed to catch 24 black-footed ferrets the first six died of the disease. They were already infected when they caught them, um, leaving only 18. Of those 18, 14 of them would go on to successfully breed. And when they worked out the relationships of those 14, it turned out that they were descended from just seven. So all black-footed ferrets alive today trace their ancestry to seven animals. Today, every single living black-footed ferret is basically a half-sibling to all other black-footed ferrets.
1: There's a really significant point in here, which is that, that species that go through what is known as a bottleneck, a genetic bottleneck, end up with enormously reduced levels of genetic diversity. And that's that's really bad.
5: Well, and that's what we're seeing with a black-footed ferret now. So they've managed through captive breeding, they've managed to build up a population approaching 1,000. But they're beginning to see in the captive members that... Um, Sperm motility is being reduced. They're becoming less fertile over time. And they think this is because of the inbreeding, because they are descended from seven founder members. Is this also where, if you have a population of creatures that are all very genetically similar, then they're very
4: susceptible to attack from parasites or, or sort of external forces? I'm thinking here, Adam, do you know, do you know about the banana do you know about the banana apocalypse? Okay. Oh, vaguely. Okay. So the, you the know,
1: banana apocalypse. The
4: banana apocalypse. Right. Banana apocalypse. Sure. We're going with that. We're going with that. You know how banana flavouring doesn't taste like bananas? It's because banana flavouring was based on a banana called the Gros Michel banana, Big Mike banana.
1: <laughs> which was the tastiest, <laughs> juiciest banana that ever did exist. It, it's not clear to me whether, whether Hannah's making this up or not. <laughs> I will check this afterwards.
4: <laughs> it's absolutely true. Grosse Michelle, Big Mike banana, uh-huh. absolutely delicious. They cloned it and cloned it and cloned it until the entire world was covered all around with Big Mike bananas. They were all identical genetically, or very little genetic diversity, at which point some disease appears that is essentially kryptonite to the Big Mike banana and wipes out the entire global population of Big Mike bananas. And Big Banana, the, the Big Banana corporates, didn't, <laughs> didn't learn their lesson from this because they've essentially done the same thing again. Now, all the bananas around the world are essentially clones of one other tasty banana that they found called the Cavendish banana. And uh, people are genuinely worried about the banana apocalypse.
1: The, and that's the banana apocalypse because bananas are so susceptible to disease. Because they're all the same. <laughs> there is a serious point there within Big Mike, Mike Banana, which is that which is the genetic diversity, when it's extremely reduced in inbreeding, results in extreme susceptibility to disease, to infection, to parasites. And that's what you're describing with the black-footed ferret.
5: That's right. And we already know that the black-footed ferret was quite vulnerable to a lot of different viruses already it, it suffers not just from the sylvatic plague which is what they they think caused the reduction in numbers in the first place but other viruses too so if these animals are becoming more and more inbred in a rapidly changing world this is
1: potentially bad news right well ben Novak was involved in the black-footed ferret revival project he had something to say about breaking that cycle of inbreeding
6: A couple of those animals that didn't successfully breed, someone had taken skin samples of those and they created cell lines from those and put them in the cryo tank. And so those are two individuals that are unrelated to all living black-footed ferrets. Um, We sequenced their genomes back in 2014 when the idea of cloning them was proposed. And on December 10th, 2020, Elizabeth Ann was born, who is a genetic twin... A clone of Willa, the female ferret that died in 1988, is is an incredible first achievement. It's the first of uh, more clones on the way, and we are hoping this spring that not only we will be producing clones of Willa, the female ferret that died in 1988, but also a the male ferret that died in December 1985. You know, once we have a number of good, healthy clones from from both the female and male cell line. Those animals will be bred uh, with the captive population and eventually their offspring, grandchildren, great-grandchildren will be released to the wild um, to get that, those genetics into the wild populations as well.
4: I've got a little video of Elizabeth Ann. She's very cute. She's gorgeous. How do you describe it? I mean, it's sort of like you would, she would belong quite happily on a uh, greeting card. You know, on the cover of a greeting card.
5: Well, she's quite Sophia Loren, I think. Oh,
1: petite Petite and beautiful. She'd Mm. probably tear your face off given half a chance, though. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Helen, just so I understand this again, they've reintroduced genetic diversity by resurrecting one that they had on file. All of
5: the black-footed ferrets that we have today are descendants of these seven founder members. That's a problem because it's creating inbreeding. Now, they've potentially got two additional founders. They haven't got the animals, they've got the cells from them. They use them. They've cloned one of those animals. So now the number of founders has gone up from seven to eight. In the future, it can potentially go up to nine. And that might not sound like a big deal, but it could be like a much needed shot in the arm of genetic diversity that this species of ferret desperately needs. Well, maybe that's the point here, Adam, Then that that this isn't about,
4: you know, reviving dinosaurs just for fun or theme parks or Hollywood movies. It's something that could actually be used to manage and protect species that are at
1: risk. I'm I'm a bit on the fence about this, but I think that one of the key ideas that has emerged is that we might create biobanks. For future conservation projects, so we spoke to Tullis Matson, who's the founder of a charity called Nature's Safe, which freezes tissue from endangered species, mostly to help prevent extinction, but also to act as a kind of insurance policy for species that may go extinct in the future. Here's Tullis Matson.
2: Nature Safe is a charity that's been set up two years ago to cry preserve and freeze animal tissue samples down, and reproductive tissue as well. The word SAFE stands for saving animals from extinction. Our aim is to freeze as many different species, uh, especially the ones that are critically endangered, to to freeze them down. Uh, So in the future, in 10, 20, 30, or even a thousand years' time, those cells are as good as the day we froze them. So we've done Southern white rhinos, we've done Asian elephants, we've done the Java green magpie, one of the rarest birds in the world. So when we get the phone call from the zoo, it's always a sad call. Unfortunately, we'll get a call saying this animal's passed away. It's going to be with you in the next 12 hours or the, in the post the next day. So the, the beauty about these skin samples, we've got up to five days. Uh, so they literally post it, arrives with us at five degrees, a sample of its ear. And that's all we need. It's 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 quite incredible. That's all we need. And it's literally arrives r- r- in the post. Uh, I don't know whether the postman knows what he's bringing us. But, uh, uh, but yeah, and then, then we can handle it from there.
4: Happy with that, Adam, as a solution for the future?
1: I'm not sure about getting an ear sent to me in the post. That's the beginning of a bad horror film. Uh, yeah, I, 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 think that is, I think that's a good idea. I, I still wonder whether this is a distraction from from actually doing what we should be doing, which is preventing extinction in the first place and, and devoting all of our resources to preventing habitat loss.
5: I mean, I'm not arguing with that, but I don't think it's either or. This is the thing. The people who are doing these de-extinction projects generally it's with funding that is hard to come by and the funding is separate so it's not either or and i think it's really sensible if we've got these techniques at our fingertips that we at least develop the technology to a point where we can assess its worth and see if it's going to be part of the conservation toolkit it's only very recently we're starting to use more modern methods assisted reproduction this is an extension of those methods so i think we ought to be considering it well on that note thank you very much for joining us in the studio dr helen pilcher Oh, mm-hmm.
4: So, Dr. Rutherford, when it comes to convincing you that resurrecting extinct animals is a good idea, can I say case solved?
1: Well, the technical and the scientific problems are still massive. Yes, and the ethical problems are still unresolved. But behind the sensational headlines, there is a real story about conservation.
4: Because the technology developed
1: is already helping us to conserve at-risk species. And reducing the chances of more species going extinct with biobanks. The lessons of the Big Mike Banana
4: will finally be heard.
0: Exploring the events shaping our lives through original documentary storytelling. We'll hear arguments to against we. The documentary from the BBC World Service is a window onto the wider world.
4: The security situation in Europe has changed in the last couple
0: of years dramatically. Search for The Documentary wherever you get your BBC podcasts.